Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, our third former White House press secretary to come on the podcast, Kaylee McEnany, now of Fox News on the state of the media and of politics. This is episode 18. From working at CNN to working at Fox News to what it's like to work for President Trump to the importance of her faith, we start with McEnany's time sparring with the media in the White House briefing room. I want to start with your time in the White House. Uh, you're actually the third former press secretary uh, to come on the Fourth Watch podcast. We've had Dana Perino on and Ari Fleischer, and uh, and now we welcome you here. Uh, I want to know how, how you assess your time at the podium. Now you're kind of on the other side in the media at Fox News, but uh, what, what do you remember about that time uh, only last year? Thank you. It's such a great uh, honor to join you. I'm so glad that we made this work. So thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to follow in the footsteps of Ari and Dana, uh, two great colleagues of mine over at Fox, and certainly understand the role that I had. I, you know, when I think back, I think of a time uh, number one where the media had an entirely different disposition. Um, it was not. A some reporters, I would say, live in what is the old journalism model, which is asking questions of interest to the American people. Um, I think it's a handful, um, but their disposition was um, that of attack mode, gotcha mode. Um, And I, as a conservative coming into this role, had to find a way uh, to hold the press accountable um, and not make it such a defensive posture at the podium, but make it one that allowed me um, to go on offense. And what I mean by offense is um, in a, in a, in a area where I could bring up proactively issues that they might not bring up to me, like crime in the streets, which was soaring last summer, homicides, I think hit their highest rate in, in a number of years when I was at the podium, but it was not something I was often asked about. So I had to find a way to proactively bring that up. Um, same when the science was on our side for schools reopening back in July, proactively bring that up. Um, Police officers who died in the streets amid these violent protests had to proactively bring that up. So I think I came into what was an innately defensive um, briefing room and was able to take it to one where I could go on offense for the American people. And that's a record that I'm proud of. Yeah, I think that there's, I want to get to these kind of like uh, mic drop moments that I feel like uh, often ended the press briefings back uh, last year with you. But let me ask you about this because I, it did. You mentioned how heated it got and also the the sorts of, I don't know, two categories of people that are in the media these days and certainly make up the briefing room as well. And uh, you're more than welcome to name names, but I will get started by just saying I, I look at it as like the Jim Acosta's of the world and the Caitlin Collins of the world. Uh, if we just take CNN as an example, like clearly one is is undoubtedly out there in a sort of performative way to, you know, to 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 you know, signal to the Twitter crowd. And then someone is there who may, you know, have certain leanings one way or the other, but seems to at least have a more, you know, more of an interest in getting at truth and facts. Do you you think that's a a fair assessment of where you you were dealing with last year? I think that's exactly right. And I had one journalist, a correspondent come up to me and say, look, I'm in the old school of journalism. You know, I don't, I don't engage in in some of these um, behaviors of my peers. And it was a really nice thing to say and a kind of a tacit recognition that the briefing room has changed. And certainly in the Trump era, it did because you had for the first time 
Um, and, and maybe this had happened before, but the nature of, of the book writing changed. But you had correspondents writing books. And I remember John Carl, who was the head of the Correspondence Association uh, when I came in, coming to my office to introduce himself. And he gives me a copy of his book. And it's I, I don't know the title off the top of my head, but it's something like the Trump circus or the circus in the briefing room. So immediately, you know, you're off on this footing of really deeply and truly, I, I did want to come in and uh, have a relationship with reporters and try to better that relationship. But when the posture is, hey, here's my book and I'm labeling this administration a circus, uh, that kind of sets the tone right from the get go. And then in the second briefing, if you go back and watch my first briefing, it was pretty polite and uh, pretty casual back and forth. And I had this red line in my head where I knew if they ever crossed into to the terrain of getting personal with me, bringing up uh, personal comments I'd made in the past about coronavirus back when I said, you know, on our on our watch, coronavirus isn't going to come here, which, by the way, Fauci said seven days later, the risk of it ever coming here was minuscule. So I was in line with the experts. But I thought to myself, if they ever bring back a personal statement, maybe I said in the campaign trail, that's the red line. And I'm going to be prepared to hold them accountable for an accurate headline. So yeah. when they crossed the red line, it only took two briefings. Um <laughs> You know, I wasn't going to sit there and just and take the abuse. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it is sort of the the double standard there. I want to talk about that as well. Yeah, John Carl's book, Front Row at the Trump Show. Uh, there you go. It's so not yeah. a circus, but a show. The show, yeah. And, and look, I have to say, um, I I did not read the book, although I read some excerpts from the book, and and I actually was so, somewhat critical of some of his colleagues, like Jim Acosta. Uh, although he later sort of backtracked on that after I don't know, maybe he got some some uh, flack for that in in uh, among the uh, other White House uh, reporters there. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, f- whether whatever the book was about, that is the th- I mean, the nature of the business now, right? It's it's your these correspondents who were mostly anonymous and sort of annoying back in you know the '90s, even if we want to go to the 2000s, are now. Uh, public figures. I mean, Twitter has made everyone sort of their own little media influencer. And and it does seem like it's changed the equation in in how the job is done at this point. Entirely. They all, not all, I, I don't want to say all because there are some incredible reporters like Steve Holland comes to mind, who is wonderful. Um, Mario Parker was great to work with. Zeke Miller from the AP was um, pretty, pretty fair. You know, there were some that that truly just wanted to do the job of a journalist. And then there were others who you saw them creating their personal brand. And I think you're exactly right to bring up the age of Twitter and social media because I think that feeds into it. Uh, you know, when Jim Acosta would trend, I'm sur- sure he'd uh, you know, sell a few books or John Carl or whomever. So uh, it becomes a brand and a departure from the old school journalism that I think some in the briefing room still represent. Now the pendulum swings and Jen Psaki is the White House press secretary. How does McEnany think she's doing and how is the press treating her? And now we go from a, uh, a former CNN contributor like yourself going to the briefing room, uh, which I want to talk about your time at CNN also, to another former CNN contributor going to the briefing room, Jen Psaki. Uh, although the reception has not been very similar, uh, the, the pendulum swim, I mean, the swing, there's been this, Washington, there was a Washingtonian story earlier this month titled The Awkward Feeling of Rooting for the White House Press Secretary. Half of America is smitten with Jen Psaki while a swath of the White House press corps sounds quite taken with how polite she is. Uh, and this, Saki's tone is measured and warm. If you're a reporter, I mean, this, this is the way it's going now. What do you think of the way the briefing room has evolved uh, year over year? 
Look, I think the way the reporters are asking questions now, um, some of them are lacking in any scrutiny, refusing to ask about certain topics. Um, they're they're giving um, a lot of runway uh, because it's a Democrat administration. You don't have a Playboy reporter shouting from the back of the room at Jen Psaki, which I think would be bad if they were. They did it. They do it to Republican women, not to Democrat women. Um, it's a hard job. And yes, she we used to work at CNN together, knew each other briefly. We we encountered once or twice, and she was a very um, nice person. But you know that they the press corps, and I think it's more of an indictment on the press corps than anything she has done. But you know the very first day they asked her, you know, hey, what what was it like for Joe Biden when he went into the Oval Office? This was during the first briefing. He's been wanting this a long time. How did he feel? I would never have been asked a question like that about Donald Trump. I think the next briefing or the one after that, she was asked about the color scheme of Air Force One that President Trump had picked and what Biden thought about it. These were questions I just simply wouldn't be asked. And, you know, to have a warm and measured tone, um, I was definitely measured, but I wasn't going to be run over by a extremely far left press corps. You know, if I would have Jen Psaki a few days ago, um, or it might have been a week or two ago at this point, baked cookies for the White House press corps. If Jim Acosta amid shouting at me, if I would have replied, I baked you all cookies, I mean, I would have looked totally weak and entirely out of touch with the, the tone of the room. So I met the tone um, as needed because I was going to be a strong woman at the podium and not allow people to shout me down. Um, but I would have, of course, loved to have a relationship where I could bake the press corps cookies. It just wasn't a uh, scenario that they allowed for. And by they, when I keep saying they, I do want to emphasize, like you said, uh, the, the group of reporters in the room, the Jim Acostas, the Caitlin Collins, that really made the temperature more heated. And I think fueled the dynamic where when I left the podium, I'd have a room full of reporters shouting at me because I think a few of them kind of lit the lit the match that sparked this, this fuse, this furious fuse. Interesting. Yeah. I think there was a, a situation that I saw called back during that cookie situation where I think it was Sarah Sanders who like made pie and then April <laughs> Ryan was like, I'm not going to eat that. You know, maybe it was poisoned or something. I have to go. Questioned if she really made the pie or something. <laughs> right. Exactly. right. Yeah. It, it turned into a whole a whole thing. Everyone was uh, a very different tone there. Um, Good parallel. Yeah. 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 That's that's the way it is. Now, and, and honestly, though, the look, I, I don't tone, you know, measured versus measured and warm. I mean, all of that is, is one thing. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, if, if the reporters are asking substantive questions, whether it's a little more heated or a little less heated is, is not as much of the issue. I, I find it interesting that what we're getting from Jen Psaki is not necessarily, I mean, on the first day also of her briefing, she promised this, this trust and transparency to return to the White House and the White House briefing room. And, and I don't think we've seen any evidence of that either. I don't think that there is been, in fact, sort of the opposite. I think that there's been this wall, not only between the president and the press, um, but even just between between Jen Psaki and the press. I mean, it may be nice and, uh, you know, a nice little exchange, but you're not getting information to the public either. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you wonder, you know, each day, um, is she speaking for President Biden? I mean, I find myself wondering that when in one briefing, she was asked, you know, what when did you speak to the president today? And she said, I, I didn't speak to him today, which is just truly unheard of. I mean, I couldn't get through ordering my coffee before I heard from President Trump on the phone. I mean, I, I was we had a, a very close relationship. I was invited and welcomed into each and every meeting. And she was asked if she had walk in privileges, which I, without hesitation, said yes. I mean, yes, I would say to the um, the outer oval outside of the Oval Office, hey, I'm going to run in to see the president. They always let me through. It'd be a rare occasion if he had some secret meeting when they wouldn't. 
Um, but she wouldn't answer whether she had walk-in privileges. So it bears the question of when she and President Biden have been out of sync, which has actually been pretty often. Remember, she said that the definition of in-person learning, majority in-person learning was one day a week. And he said, I don't know who said that. It's supposed to be five days a week. They have been out of sync. And it bears wondering, you know, just how much she's speaking for President Biden or she's speaking for President Klain, as he was dubbed in an article, the chief of staff. You know, who's running the show? How close is she with the president? And who's she speaking for? I I think all those questions are really important uh, to doing a good job as press secretary. Yeah, there's also been this this massive focus on language. I, I know Olivia Newsy had a piece recently in New York Magazine mm-hmm. that talked about this idea of of the, the language policing that's happening from this administration on things like calling what's happening at the border a quote unquote crisis. And then if Biden says it's actually a gaffe if he calls it a crisis, oh no, it's just a challenge. It's it, it it's a strange focus on certain items that that you just didn't get a lot of in the last administration. Yeah, that was a fascinating read by Olivia Nuzzi. Um, not necessarily a conservative there, no. but someone who I think she's uh, fair, nevertheless, though, yeah. yeah, gave a really um, kind of scrutinizing look at the way the communications is happening in the Biden administration. And she pointed out when you know Biden left the Wilmington County Golf Club and he mentioned crisis and then Saki quickly overruled him the next day and how so tight and disciplined their messaging has been and not calling this a crisis that in fact they, she speculates that they changed the AP standards to not say crisis and the Associated Press is reporting. So it is disciplined, it's controlled, it's a, a language war really and one that um, you had a White House insider in that piece saying, hey, uh, you know, Joe Biden is the most liberal president in history, but he's being cloaked as a moderate because of how tight they've been and disciplined in the messaging uh, with the language. It's the American Rescue Plan, the American Families Act, the, you know, the Equality Act. It all sounds so great and glistening and uh, sparkly when, in fact, it's really just a cloak over a very liberal president. Yeah, I, 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 you mentioned uh, your relationship with President Trump, and, and I'm curious about how that was. I, th- this is someone who, who I, I think it's, you know, love him or hate him. It's fair to say that that no modern president, or perhaps no president, cared as much about the media. Was really of the media. Uh, you know, it was a mainstay in in New York media circles long before he he got into politics. Um, and you know, I would argue uh, back when he was in, allowed to be on Twitter was one of the the, the greatest sort of geniuses of Twitter. Um, what, what was his interaction with you in terms of dealing with the press and, and his interest in being able, kind of a part of that messaging? Yeah, he uh, very much liked my style. Um, and he would, in, in fact, I was going through um, just some old personal notes I had about my time there. And I, I literally was writing down all the times he would call me saying, do a briefing today, go do one next hour. And, you know, for him and I, we were totally different. Um, and that, you know, for him, he could just walk to a microphone at any moment and just brief on you know the news of the day. For me, I'm someone who comes from a discipline of um, intensive research and over preparing. So I would want, you know, kind of two days in between and not to do the daily briefing. So he'd always want me out there more and we'd find a happy medium of me being out there every few days. But look, him being a master of media um, made me be on my toes. It meant that I needed to know where his head was at it every single moment of the day. I believe only one time were we out of sync on something. And that's something I'm very proud of. And it meant, um, and it was actually Sarah Sanders that gave me this advice. Try to be in every meeting, be around him as much as you can. Always be there because to be his voice, you know, his voice is out there. Every time he walks to 
Marine One or Air Force One, he's going to stop and talk to the press. And if you don't know where his head is at on every single issue, uh, you can't do your job. So it, it made me a better press secretary, knowing I had a boss that literally at a, at a, on a whim would say, bring the press in, because I knew that there was no room for taking an hour or two off or a weekend off and, and not knowing where he was. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, look, I, I think obviously in pretty much every presidency, you want to have your press secretary and your president in sync, but, but I would imagine even more so than any other administration because of how the speed with which, you know, Trump moved uh, on on issues, you know, a, a Twitter speed. I would I would say uh, yeah, Twitter speed. I mean, like if you think it compared to Jen Psaki, who he's done one press conference, he sporadically and randomly takes questions, not often. So she's, you know, essentially it's a scripted presidency, and it's very easy to follow alongside a scripted presidency with the occasional press conference once every hundred days. Yeah, there was a uh, Saki was interviewed by David Axelrod recently, and actually said outright, "I have told uh, President Biden to not." answer questions from the press, <laughs> which I just, I just think, imagine you telling President Trump, uh, sorry, sir, no, no, no questions today from the press. Yeah. Like that's going to, that's going to really go over well. Well, I did tell him that sometimes, you know, and first of all, she should have never said that out loud because it totally fuels into the image of her boss being someone who's unable to take questions. You know, if I would have said that, it would have been um, portrayed by CNN and MSNBC that, you know, we don't think President Trump's a good messenger, so we're trying to rein him in. That would have, I would have never said that out loud. But, you know, now in hindsight, of course, you know, there are days I told him this is a tough news cycle. You know, maybe don't take questions on, on the way to Marine One. And those were the days he always took questions. And I think he relished the challenge. So um, he was definitely the leader, his own boss, making the own, making his own calls. He would take my counsel in, but uh, there was no doubt he was in charge and there was absolutely no doubt that he was afraid to take questions. <laughs> right. Uh, let me last thing about your time there. I, I have to, you know, one of these things that's that's bothered me the most about this current administration in terms of the coverage of it has have been the reporters who, and, and this is just like the extreme. There's cer- certain people who are talking about these Saki bombs. Oh, Jen Saki slammed the press. And I, I'm like, you know, I, I'm a journalist, you know, at heart uh, going way back for, to my college days and all the way through my career. So even on the other side, I, I found it, there were times where you talk about that kind of the way you, you fight fire with fire. And I, I would say those sort of like mic drop moments at the end of press conferences that, that you just like, you know, leave them, you know, dro- drop your, the, the, I don't know, it felt like this prepared thing kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But I have to ask, was it sort of part of your calculus, like this made for Twitter kind of shareable moment that could kind of win the press conference? Yeah, I think um, the closer was really important. And we every time had a closer prepared. um, And, you know, sometimes I would veer from it, depending on the direction of the briefing. But by and large, we would stick with it. Um, And for me, that moment was the opportunity to drive our message. And, you know, if you go back and watch some of the ones, some of the moments were used to put up in memoriam graphics of, of children who had died in the streets and saying their names out loud because Sequoia Turner, a, a young girl who died in Atlanta, is is an important um, is an important life that was lost and represents an important and disturbing trend in this country as we're seeing kids die in the streets. And you know, we would honor David Dorn, police officer. So sometimes we use those moments to bring attention uh, to lives that were lost, that were emblematic of problems in society that we were addressing, not to you know, going to, you know, policy here, but Operation Legend, which helped get killers off the streets. So sometimes it was to drive a message like that. Other times, um, you know, my second press briefing, of course, I told you when they crossed the red line of getting personal with me, I had headlines prepared to say, hey, you're going to stand up here and bring up every past comment I've ever said in my role on the campaign where 
Fauci and I were in line, but you're not going to hold Fauci accountable. I'm going to hold you guys accountable for your wrong headlines. So sometimes it was an accountability moment. Sometimes it was a moment to draw attention to uh, really important issues ignored by the media. But um, yeah, they they were prepared for the most part. And, you know, just like Jen Psaki has an opener, we had an opener and we also had a closer as well. Coming up, working at CNN as a contributor during the Trump years. What was it like off the air and in green rooms? That's next. But first, the Washington Post's new toothless and bizarre rules on employee, quote, celebrations. Newsrooms are continuing to grapple with how to navigate a landscape where its employees live online and everyone posts all the time on social media. What does, quote, objectivity mean in the environment where everything feels political, even when the absence of something can feel political? I don't really know the answer, but I'm pretty sure it's not the new guidance that was sent out in a memo last month by the Washington Post. The memo uses, quote, the season of festivals and parades that are coming up as a hook to talk more broadly about what is acceptable for employees to participate in and what kinds of activities are considered, quote, political or partisan. Here's the first example they give. It would be fine to participate in a celebration at Black Lives Matter Plaza, but not a protest there or attend a pride gathering, but not a demonstration at the Supreme Court. So a celebration at BLM Plaza, but not a protest. What? As Wesley Lowry, formerly of the Washington Post, laid out in a great thread, how does an attendee ensure one does not become the other? Is the location itself not definitionally political? There is a 100% chance that any number of readers would argue attending a celebration at Black Lives Matter Plaza amounts to the appearance of advocacy, and thus the examples in the memo violate the actual stated policy in the memo. Okay, here's another example from the memo. A newsroom employee would not hold a protest sign at a parade or wear a hat supporting or opposing a political candidate or legislative policy, but might wear a rainbow cap, wave an American flag, or wear a t-shirt celebrating their identity. Waving an American flag at a celebration, okay. Waving an American flag at a demonstration, not allowed. In theory, this makes sense. In practice, who can parse what counts as political and what doesn't? These convoluted and toothless rules ultimately help no one and will surely annoy the newsroom and attempt to put the veil of objectivity that no one, especially the audience, even believes is really there in the first place. More with Kaylee coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now back to Kaylee McEnany. Let me ask you about your time at CNN. Um, so I think the first time we ever met was probably uh, when there was a very short-lived show at CNN that I was involved in uh, called Get to the Point. Uh, That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about eight years ago or so uh, in uh, 2013. And actually, I thought it was an interesting show. I mean, it literally was short-lived. I think it was five episodes uh, in one week, but it was sort of a yeah. trial show. Um, it had like Jason Taylor, former NFL player, and Rick Riley. I mean, it was it was an interesting mix of people, sort of a five the five takeoff of uh, if you will, at night. Um, and I guess that was that was your start with CNN on some capacity. Later, joined them as a comp- uh, as a contributor officially. Uh, what do you remember most about, what do you take away from your time at CNN? 
that it was a great training ground for becoming press secretary. Um, to truly was. Um, at the time, I was at Harvard Law School when I was hired by CNN. So I had this um, really interesting confluence of on one side, rigorous academic preparation for a Harvard Law School exam. And I, I would be sometimes typing on set and Anderson Cooper would be like, are you doing a law school exam on my set? And I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> um, and we would kind of laugh about it. But um, alongside that, you know, I kind of had um, another entry into cable news. Um, and, you know, there you, you go into more of a talking point soundbite world, but I brought the same kind of rigorous preparation to CNN that I would bring to a Harvard Law School exam. And it was a Appropriate because it was often eight leftists, you know, attacking me. And then occasionally they'd give me Jeffrey Lord. Um, and it was great preparation uh, for what I would soon come to do in the briefing room. Uh, there are people who I have great respect for at CNN, Van Jones being one of them, who's just an amazing, incredible person. Um, but there's no doubt it was hostile. Uh, and I think it just became even more hostile in the briefing room because I think in 2015, no one at CNN outside of me and Jeffrey Lord thought the president would become the president, President Trump. Um, and I think it became even more hostile upon my departure because no one had seen that coming. Yeah, I, I can only right. I, I can only imagine the the uh, you know as someone who worked at CNN in 2010 to 2013, just what the newsroom must have been like on that <laughs> November 2016. Um, but but even before that, I mean, even especially during the primary, when you could argue, and I went back and looked at this and, and wrote about it for Fourth Watch. I mean, the way that that Trump was interviewed by Anderson Cooper, by Don Lemon, uh, it. It felt, I mean, it, it was not, it weren't easy interviews, but it was like a substantive, like give and take, a normal interview like any normal uh, politician might be. But that was before they thought, you know, he could maybe win the primary and then maybe win the general election. It, it, it changed quite a bit after that. It did. Yep. Um, it absolutely did. You mentioned Anderson Cooper. Uh, any other of the anchors there, like Anderson or, or others, you know, in terms of your experience in dealing with them, was it, was it generally cordial uh, on the set, you know, off air? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, some of them invited me to several of them actually to their Christmas parties. Um, you know, and I, I went, you know, with their staff at, over at CNN, um, very friendly onset offset. Um, obviously it got heated and we all had our points of view. Um, but everyone was very friendly off air. And I, that's one of the things that, you know, I, I don't like is that, you know, now there are very caustic barbs being thrown because I, I was in D.C. standing at the podium. So, you know, it, it's unfortunate um, that I and I wouldn't say I was great friends with anyone, but certainly cordial and cordial enough to go to a Christmas party. But it can turn so hostile and caustic simply because you go to work for President Trump, um, simply because you go to work for the Republican National Committee in the campaign. And, you know, all of a sudden you're missing those green room interactions and the green room uh, for your listeners. They probably know where all the talent hangs out before they go on set. And I always used to say, you know, I just wish people could see our interactions in the green room. Um, Dan Jones is a good friend of mine. And um, Paul Begallo is very kind. And, you know, I bring my little puppy there. So it's it's sad to me that cable news has gotten so um, hostile and that, that the viewer doesn't get to see the interactions in the green room. And I, I don't stay in touch with many folks over at CNN anymore. Van Jones occasionally I'll text with. But, you know, it, it's sad to me uh, that society and cable news has gotten to a point where it's just so jousting. Yeah. I, I want to talk about that. I, Van, you mentioned, and I, 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 Van really is one of the, the good guys of, of the media. Uh, I, yeah. the, um, 
the, the article that was written about you in the New York Times, I thought it was actually a good profile uh, of you when you first got the job back in April of 2020. Uh, Van was quoted in there saying, there's very few people in either party who can accomplish what Kaylee has accomplished in such a short time. People keep taking her lightly and they keep regretting it. Um, Donna Brazil also was mentioned in there, who I know you worked with at CNN and now now your colleague again at Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that like some of the people like Van and Donna Brazil are people that have worked in politics and and seem to be able to separate the politics from the personal uh, more than some people that just like completely went off the deep end over the last four years. And that's the key is separating the politics from the personal. Um, I think that that's key. And some people aren't able to do that. I'd, I'd say most people are, but you know, it's, it's hard when you, when you meet people who can't separate the two, but Van, I mean, my first day, at CNN uh, on an election night panel. I remember rounding the corner to go into the green room um, and he didn't even know my name. We'd never met before. And he pointed at me and goes, I love your cross. And he said it out loud and in front of a green room of other commentators. And it immediately, you know, disarmed me. Um, He was so friendly and kind to me throughout the rest of the evening, showing me when I had lipstick in my teeth and giving me a mirror to make sure I got it off. He kind of coached me as a, you know, young pup there. But I think, you know, with Donna and Van in particular, we're all um, Christian men and women who know that there's a a bigger person we have to please, and it's not President Trump or President Biden. Uh, For us, it's our our Lord and Savior. So it was very easy for Donna Brazil and I to go have red wine after a CNN segment or, um, you know, Van Jones to make that remark because, you know, he's my, my brother in Christ and she's my sister in Christ. Hmm. That's interesting. I want to talk about your faith also a little bit later. Um, I, I, last thing on CNN, I, I don't know, I know you've, you've now moved to Fox and we'll talk about that as well, but I, do you ever watch CNN and did you watch CNN during those, those years, uh, on the last, you know, the last couple of years? Because, and, and I'm curious what you make of it now. Like what, there, there's sort of this feeling, at least for me, as I watch it of this, like real fork in the road moment, um, because Trump is no longer the president and, you know, maybe he'll be back in, in our lives in 2024. Uh, maybe you have some inside information on that. Uh, I don't know, but, but right now he's not. And there does seem to be this divide of like, all right, now what do we do? Um, because, because they really were built in a very specific way that doesn't seem to necessarily translate to where things are in 2021. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and I think that they routinely do this. Remember their model before President Trump came along was the Malaysian air crash, the plane crash that had happened. And they were covering that basically wall to wall. Then they changed to President Trump. Um, and now he's gone and they find themselves in a, in a hard spot. Um, I do occasionally tune into CNN. I always like to see what the um, the uh, the you know, left is thinking. So I, I occasionally tune in. It's, it's hard to watch. So I don't watch for long. I'm, I'm a Fox viewer through and through. I have that on all day, every day. Uh, but I occasionally flip over to see it. And, and they're definitely having an identity crisis. And I think it can be best summed up by uh, that reporting that was done. Um, it was the, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name now. It was the, um, this, the camera where they were caught live um, saying that one of their directors was caught live. Oh uh, yeah, the James O'Keefe video. The James O'Keefe video saying that we're going to pivot um, from Trump to climate change because fear sells and, you know, COVID to climate change, he said. And and he talked about having a red phone in, in the room and uh, 
they, according to him, the higher ups, presumably Jeff Zucker would call and say, get the COVID fatality numbers up. And again, these are his words. I, I can't speak for the authentic authenticity of it, but that, that was his allegation. And he said, we're going from COVID to climate. So they seem to have a model where they, they hone in on one issue. And I don't know that it will serve them well. Um, certainly now, I, I think people are kind of done with the fear stuff because 2020 was a pretty fearful year for everyone. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also a transition sort of fork in the road when it comes to COVID. I, I think that they're, you know, we're, we're getting out of this idea of, of, okay, everyone buckle down and it's, you know, doom and gloom. And then we have to actually start to educate educate people about the current situation. And uh, it's, it, I think, not not just CNN, but all the media is finding a little bit of a challenge to pivot to to the reality um, in, in this new world. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the, the, the missing plane. I actually really enjoy the missing plane coverage. Um, yeah. I'm still wondering what the hell happened with that missing plane. Uh, I, I mean, I still think it's fascinating. Like, certain stories I get. And, and honestly, I I'm, was one of these people, and, and I don't know how you felt about it, like, Jeff even admit like the one thing Jeff has now admitted he did wrong was done like you know the too much of uninterrupted Trump speeches in, during 2015 and early 2016 and I'm like you know but that was what people were interested in I I don't know I mean it seems like it was news I mean the guy was the biggest celebrity you know a former reality TV host and now he's running for president and is is at the top of every poll uh, I, I I don't know I don't fault him for that I don't fault him for things that that the average person in America cares about I I think it's more of an issue in the, what they've evolved to and, and the ratings have sunk because of it. A hundred percent. And, and I think, first of all, how troubling that statement is that he regrets taking Trump's events live. And then the people got to see an unvarnished lens of Trump like him or don't like him. The people chose to vote on him. Um, but it's really crazy to me that we got to a place where I would have to call producers back during my time on the campaign or, you know, in my official capacity when it was an official event the president was doing and beg them, beg the bureau chiefs to take President Trump. And they would all take Biden pretty much wall to wall. But they really silenced President Trump, much like Twitter did, because they just refused to cover his rallies, his events, his official events. Uh, and then you had Twitter covering the Hunter Biden, uh, refusing to cover the Hunter Biden story and censoring it. So we've got into a troubling place when media can just not cover one candidate and in doing so and instead have commentary panels on him. And in doing so, in my mind, shape the way an election turns out because they're shaping the view of the American people by not giving them an unvarnished look at the candidate. McEnany's move to Fox News as co-host about Numbered, the importance of her faith, and the Fourth Watch lightning round coming up next. Now you've you've moved on to a different media outlet uh, over at Fox News. Uh, you're now co-host of Outnumbered. Uh, how has that move been? What what have you you've sort of learned about the place in the time that you've been there? Yeah, you know, I love it. I actually started my career right out of college at Fox as a producer. So I very much, it felt like coming home for me because I spent three years there working for Governor Huckabee's show. He used to have a weekend show. Oh, yeah. uh, so for me, it, it he, like, feels like- He had the like, band um, on the show, right? He, was, he had the band yeah. on the show. That's right. <laughs> so it's a lot of familiar faces in the building, people I worked with uh, many years ago. Um, so now to be back, it, it's wonderful. I've, um, I'm learning a lot each and every day from Harris Faulkner. She's someone who I have just had so much respect for as a journalist, um, being on the outside in the political world, watching her ask tough questions of, you know, whoever she's talking to in a way that's fair and, and the viewers really like her. So, you know, sitting beside her the few times we've done it in person, it's just, it's really fun to watch how she works. It's a totally different skill set, reading a teleprompter, being a questioner instead of being the one who's questioned. So to get to watch her every day, I'm, I'm like constantly taking mental notes at how to do the job better um, by, by looking to a, a journalist like her. 
um, that I can even take those tips in my opinion capacity on the show. I can, I can take those tips and try to work them in. Yeah, that's great. And Harris, I mean, it's it's so great to see her really shining now. She's been there a long time also. I, I my, my first job out of college, 2006, was a production assistant overnight and the weekends. And I remember her as like the news cut-ins uh, during that time. Always so nice. I mean, I was like the very bottom of the totem pole there. Um, and yep. uh, was uh, was just a great person and really has, has, has succeeded now. Um you're also, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, Fox, obviously, the most prominent, um, you know, frankly, media network at the, at this point uh, or media outlet, uh, but also, you know, certainly right leaning media outlet. And it's an interesting time when it comes to to you know conservatives on a national stage. There's there's sort of, for lack of a better deviation, the Cheney wing and the Trump wing uh, right now. And and I and I wonder how you think that's playing out among right leaning media as well. And and what do you think this current moment in the conservative movement is going to look like as it plays out in the media over the years to come? Yeah, I think they have a choice. Um, President Trump did a lot for the party in that. And I, I used to send meetings with him and every single advisor, at least a, a big handful would be like, you can't do this. And, you know, don't, don't, you know, make this policy decision. This is perilous for you in an election year. And he'd say, I don't care if I told the base I'm doing it. If I told my voters I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And he never lost sight of the faces of the voters he saw at his rallies that put him there. And he, of course, kept the rallies throughout the entirety of his presidency, which I think kept him in check with the people. It means a lot when you're looking into the faces of voters versus sitting in a bureaucratic meeting in Washington. And when you're in Washington, you find yourself getting sucked into that a little bit. And for me, um, I, I, you know, cut my teeth out on the campaign trail. So I was constantly talking to voters tons and tons. So I really knew where the people stood, at least the people supporting the president. And so for me, going into Washington, I had this interesting moment where, you know, you, you're you listening to the Fauci's of the world, to Dr. Burks and to others, and, you know, they're telling you one thing and that you must make this policy decision. And then, you know, I remember going down to Florida to a rally and talking to Governor DeSantis, and this was at the height of the pandemic, and the things he was saying are all things that we would ring true to us now about how to deal with COVID, not to have excessive lockdowns. But at the time, you know, he sounded so out of sync with what the Washington folks were telling me, but he was right. Uh, and he had his, his, his feet in lockstep with the people. And so I think I tell you this long anecdote just to say, I think it's imperative um, that the, the Trump rendition of the Republican Party went out. And that is a rendition where we're constantly in line with our voters. We're in check with our voters, our leadership represents our voter standpoint and getting away from the kind of Washington swamp mold where we decide, oh, I don't care if the voters think that way. I'm just going to do what, what the swamp's telling me to do. So I think um, the Trump wing of the party is, is here to stay. And it's and Ron DeSantis, I think Vice President Pence is of the Trump wing of the party. I, I think Christy Noam is, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, that wing of the party most closely approximates the voters. Uh, someone was trying to share this uh, as this, well, you know, Liz Cheney has voted with Trump a lot more than than Elise Stefanik did. It's like, I, I don't think it's not about really the, the the vote as much as insiders and outsiders, it feels like. And and if, if anything, you know, and, and this this frankly was was this great, you know, needle that Fox has thread over the course of decades now to 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 really you know, bring a, an outsider point of view to a media environment that feels often very insidery, um, and it does feel like there's there's a connection there with with what Trump was able to do within the party as well. 
Absolutely. I mean, you look at, um, you know, Tucker Carlson at the 8 p.m. hour. I mean, I, I can't wait every night at 8 p.m. to hear what he has to say because it's just so unique, um, yeah. so in lockstep with the thinking of everyday Americans I hear from. And then Hannity, likewise, who just has had his finger on the Trump movement for years and years. You know, the opinion voices uh, represent a vast swath of the party, and I would argue a majority of the country's thinking. And to be able to have that in a mainstream media and environment is is just um it, it's incredible and, and I, I love watching it every night i'm honored to be a part of it and bring bring my opinion which i think and, and hope approximates that same uh sort of wing of the party that i, I intend to represent and that I, I truly believe in nice all right last thing before we get to the uh, lightning round here i want to ask you about about your faith you mentioned it in conversations with van uh, van jones down in brazil um but it is something i i feel like um you know i've been in dallas now for about seven years i was it was an east coaster my whole life um and kind of in that media bubble that acela media bubble that i, I describe with dc and new york city and i do think one of the biggest uh things that's really been illuminating is this geographic bias i feel like in a lot of the media and a lot of that goes to to you know faith and community and and, and it doesn't, it's not about party necessarily, um, but you just don't see a lot of members of the media speak so, um, you know, with, with such clarity about their own faith. Uh, and as you have, I, I, uh, I really was struck there's a, people can, can find a CBN interview you did uh, early uh, in your time. I think this was in May of last year, um, which yeah. I thought was fantastic. I, I, w- tell me about your, the, your faith and kind of the role that it's played in, in all of your career. It's indispensable. Look, it's, um, you know, you go through life um, and and sometimes, you know, you always encounter challenges. I mean, I took the role of press secretary in a once in a generation global pandemic ahead of violent riots and um, just a lot of turmoil. And I didn't know what was ahead. Um, and, you know, for me, leaning on my faith is, is the only answer. And it's the only thing that keeps me clear eyed um, and on the straight and narrow in a, a field where, there's a lot of pressure to cast your face faith aside. And I've never felt that pressure at, at Fox or anything, and even at, at CNN, I would say. But, you know, I think we've gotten to a point in society where, you know, I, I gave a speech um, the other week and it was about um, BRCA gene, a breast cancer gene I had and a decision I made to remove my breast tissue. And I mentioned Jesus Christ and in that speech. And I had a woman come up to me after and say, I was kind of half asleep during the first half of your speech. I'm like, okay, well, that's not good. (laughs) Um, But she said, you said Jesus Christ. And I immediately just sat up and started listening to what you said. And I just wanted to thank you for saying his name because it sounds like, feels like sometimes you can't say his name anymore. And I just thought to myself, that's so sad that we've gotten to a place in society, woke society, where people are afraid to say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. And for me, I've been given this platform um, that I'm only here because... God led me here, and and it's my duty um, and my calling uh, to to say His name, to be bold, to give others the boldness to share their faith. Because um, for me, it's been the guiding principle in my life. No matter how tumultuous the waters get, um, He's always there as a rock, um, and and He guides guides me each and every day, um, and will continue to. And I will always be open about it and vocal about it. And luckily, Fox has given me a platform to do that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, all right, Kelly. Six questions, sixty seconds. Where were you born? Jacksonville, Florida. You're the co-host of Outnumbered on Fox News. What's one benefit and one cost of that job? 
Ah, one of the benefits is um, getting to see my lovely co-host every day. We have a, a great, beautiful facility there at Fox where we get hair and makeup, which is so fun being a female. Um, but I think the downside is leaving my great home state of Florida, which is where my heart is. Um, we'll be relocating up to the New York area, which will be a fun and exciting journey, but my heart is in Florida and always will be. All right. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Van Jones, as I've mentioned, um, but also Alan Combs, the late Alan Combs. It used to be Hannity and Combs, and Combs was the leftist. So it's funny, all my all my mentors have been leftist. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I am conservative, I swear. Yeah, the late Alan Combs. Yeah, Alan was great. Um, yes. Who is one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people, I guess, besides Van Jones? Oh, gosh, this is hard. Um, personally and professionally, this, this is very hard. I mean, I guess Jen Saki. I've only met her once, um, but she was very kind and, and told me about the attributes of having a career in Washington. And I think she even talked to me about being a mother. And just, you know, again, I've only met her one time, uh, but I thought that she was very kind. And it's a tough job. Um, and, you know, she's doing a good job. So, All right. Who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Interesting and talented, not getting enough attention. Oh, this is very hard. Oh, no, this is very hard. I know there are some good ones. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, this is really, really good, but really hard. I mean, <laughs> everyone I know is getting a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, then. Oh, actually, no, I've got right. a great answer. Okay. Stephen okay. Miller. He is phenomenal. He worked in the Trump administration with me, became one of my good friends. I know a lot of people know of him. The media has been terrible to him, just like they were to me. That is a brilliant, brilliant young man. I'm glad to st I'm starting to see him on Fox a bit, uh, but he is someone to watch. Uh, he's got a, a huge career, be it in politics or in media. Yeah, he's, he's back on active on Twitter now also, which, uh, yes. which is, I've been yes. following. Uh, one year from today, what's one prediction for the media? Uh, the Republican Party will be on the precipice of uh, retaking the House and the Senate, and I don't think the media will see it coming because they'll be busy fawning over the FDR-like presidency of Joe Biden. Kelly McEnany, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Thanks so much to Kelly McEnany. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. You can go to fourthwatch.media to subscribe for free. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And speaking of downloading, download, rate, review, subscribe, follow, like, all those things for the Fourth Watch podcast, uh, which you're listening to right now. Go to the podcast platform of your preference and go and download it now. This has been produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.